0: Hello and welcome to the Sense of Place podcast. Now in today's episode I chat to Ian Rodwell, the creator of the fantastic liminal narratives blog which explores the betwixt and between liminal spaces of our world. Now some of you might be asking what is a liminal space? Well it's all that lovely mundane goodness like abandonments, coach stations, train stations, corridors, crossroads, pylons, ghost signs, motorways, I could go on, the list goes on. Um, But basically they're typically those places and spaces that are unloved and on the edgelands of society or a means of transit getting from one place to the other. Now I'll give you a rundown of some of the topics me and Ian get into on today's show. So our chat begins with a look at the more unusual liminal spaces like a beach and a home in certain instances how that can become a liminal space. We then get into the origins of the term liminal and how it is used in terms of place. We also delve into Mark Auger's concept of non-places which basically means spaces where You know, relations, identity, history is kind of erased. So an example of that would include an airport, a motorway, a supermarket. And we also touch on what counts as a non place and the appeal of some of them, such as a train station or an airport. Why humans feel the need to craft stories around liminal places and breathe life into symbols of the past or discarded objects? the influence and thread of folklore that runs through Ian's posts. And finally, we get into Ian's love of pylons and our changing perceptions of architecture over time. Now, before we begin, I did just want to give a quick shout out to another podcast called Liminal Theology that Ian actually recently did an interview on, which I listened to and really enjoyed. So, you know, if you enjoy this, you might enjoy giving that a listen as well. But other than that, we'll crack on with today's episode now, and I really hope you enjoy it. Uh, Ian, so thanks for coming on the show. And I know you began your blog as a complement to your studies, but is this something, you know, were you writing about liminal spaces, thinking about liminal spaces even before you began this blog? It's
1: a it's a very good question. And around 20 years ago, uh, I wrote a collection of uh, ghost stories. It was a book called The Five Quarters uh, with a very good friend of mine, uh, Steve Duffy. And thinking about it, the five stories in this collection, and it's notable how many of them are set in what you might describe as, as liminal spaces. So so one of them is in a, a dusty museum, um, that sort of hour before closing time uh, on an autumn autumn evening. Another one is set on a Second World War airfield in East Anglia. Um, which is now sort of grown over and covered in covered in grass and then one of them the 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 penny drops was uh, set in a ruined amusement arcade at the end of a pier that's been sort of broken and separated from the land so it sort of struck me that especially with the pier that's an archetypal liminal space it's it's a bit of a bit of the shore that stretches into the sea it's a ruin so it's the past um reaching into the present so these were all very um uh betwixt and between spaces so i think that was it, it it's been interesting sort of looking back at that and going mm, 20 years ago that there, there were the seeds were being planted then for liminal spaces
0: were you When you were writing that, were you thinking in your head, this is liminal? Or were you just kind of writing it because it was something that captured your interest? I think it
1: was something that captured my interest because I hadn't really um, sort of thought about the term liminal. I kind of knew that it sort of meant on the edges or, or the borders, but it was just a, it was just a word, really. So I hadn't uh, it, I think it was just those those spaces must have. And especially where we were thinking about sort of ghost ghost stories um, and ghosts in themselves are, are liminal beings, neither dead nor alive. You know that uh, they're, they're on the border, uh, or on the margins. Um, might have might have influenced that, but yeah, it was it was definitely something to do with imagination. It must have been, it must have been sort of lurking in the background of my uh, of my mind for a long time.
0: Yeah, I have to say I love the whole liminal space because I until I found your blog I kind of never really associated that word with what it is you know the in-between the kind of what your blog posts are about and it really sums it up nicely in one word I I would say and funnily enough you were talking about the pier the post you wrote about the beaches that was a for me a, a space I would never have even thought to write about as being a liminal space and it totally is isn't it it's um you know how it changes at night and, and in the day and the holiday season and
1: absolutely and also because it's if you think about it as a as a material space as a physical space it's constantly changing so you know you know especially in the uh, here over in England you go to the you, you go to the beach and there's no beach there because the tides in and it's just water and then you give it two or three hours and then the beach has returned. And of course, with every tide, the beach changes because more things are deposited on it, more things are more things are taken away, and also the way that, especially here in the east of England, the the coastline is eroded by the by the sea, so it, it's constantly shifting, constantly changing. You know, it, it's a, it's a world in in transition, and also with the beach, it's a it's a place it's a place of leisure, but it's also a, a working space as well. So you know, people who are fishing from there, you've You've got sort of boat trips. You've got um, you've got holiday resorts. Uh, So it's a place of uh, it's a place of sort of commerce and work. A place of a place of leisure. It's a holiday space. So it's that sort of interval between uh, sort of periods periods of work. So yeah, I think somebody once described the beach as the archetypal uh, liminal space.
0: It really is when you think about it, because it just all day long it's changing. And funnily enough, you know, you live in Norfolk. I actually when i was younger that's where i went on holiday every I year would- <laughs> you know um do you know east runton and Cromer? I do, yes <laughs> yeah i'm there so and the beach at east runton like every year we go back the uh cliff was just eroding and the caravans <laughs> that were on the top of the site was starting to slip away <laughs> and then you had those um oh what are they those little war huts and stuff uh, on the beach as well like they, they, they uh, appear sometimes yeah
1: well, you've got the pillboxes and, and various other kind of fortifications there, but there's also the, I think it's called Woodhenge. Uh, it was sort of uncovered in the mud, which was uh, sort of a, a wooden place of uh, sort of neo- Neolithic or even before then sort of worship that was, uh, that was uncovered, these, these kind of posts in the sand. And also, they've uh, uncovered uh, sort of mammoth bones, and also some really old footprints have appeared in the in the mud. So it, it's also the way that the with the action of the tide and with, with erosion, you know, what you get is the past the past reappearing into the into the present.
0: No, I love that, and also I am aware of that because on I think West Runton Beach they have that elephant or didn't they find an elephant or something in the cliff and yeah the mammoth yeah that was it yeah so I when I've been walking along that beach um I'm always you know I, I was always looking on the floor thinking like I, this could be it I could fa- make a find here <laughs> <laughs> because there's a lot of things that have been found <laughs> down in um norfolk actually yeah There really is so it's
1: um yeah i think we hold the record for the uh for the most items of treasure that are, that are handed in of all the counties in england um and often it's people just sort of uh walking walking the fields or walking the beaches and just stuff is lying there because it's been it's been turned up by the plow or it's been revealed by the by the tide so there is that sense that you're constantly slipping between between times um and the past reappearing when you when you least expect it
0: yeah i love that because it's, it's, it's pure luck i mean there's probably been a lot of times things have been swept in and swept away without people noticing it and it's just pure luck that they happen to be going by the beach at that moment and had the eye to notice whatever it was you know
1: exactly it's just that coincidence being in the right place at the right time, looking down at the right moment, um, and then uh, and then being curious about what it is that you see because they don't come with labels. It's just going to be something <laughs> yeah, exactly. like sparks your know, imagination, and you think, oh, I wonder what I wonder what this is. So yeah, so it's it's a it's an archetypal liminal space, the beach.
0: Yeah, I did want to ask you as well. For you, what is the point that you would sort of? When would you class something as a liminal space? What are the qualities for you personally? I mean, it's a bit of a tough question, but, you know, you wrote about so many spaces and I'm just like, oh, my God, of course that could be a liminal space. I wouldn't have even thought of it myself.
1: Oh, well, Ailish, it's a dangerous question to ask, and I, I don't know how long we've got, but I think just for, because some of your listeners may be thinking, well, what is this term liminal? Where does it, where does it come from? Yeah, so just a little yeah. bit of background and then we'll go into the spaces is that uh, it's uh, it comes from the latin uh, the limits for a threshold so it's a sort of the threshold or a border that we cross over but the way people often talk about it now is in the you've got to go back to the beginning of the sort of the early 20th century, and there was a, an anthropologist called uh, Arnold van Gennep, and he wrote a book called Rites of Passage, and it was about rites of passage in traditional society. So where, let's say, it's a, a rite of passage of a boy becoming a man or a, a girl becoming a woman. And he said that there's three stages to this. The first stage is you're kind of removed from your society, and you're taken with the other initiates to a separate space. And he called that the liminal phase. And then you're reincorporated back into your society. And these ideas were picked up by a guy called Victor Turner, another anthropologist in the 60s. And what he said is the, the liminal phase, it's it's, it's, a, it's an ambiguous, paradoxical stage, because in that, in that liminal phase, you are, for example, no longer a boy, but not yet a man. So it is contradictory, it's paradoxical. But it can also be a creative, it can be an energizing time. It can also be slightly sort of playful or transgressive. And if you sort of think about, well, how does that translate into real life? If you think about when you started a new job or you went into a new role, and you probably had quite mixed feelings about that, you might have felt a bit, uh, a sense of trepidation or nervousness or a little bit of excitement. Um, so these ambiguous feelings, you could say, well, that's a, that's a sort of a, a liminal phase that you're that you're going through. And a lot of people have sort of written about sort of liminality and applied it to a whole host of different things. But when we think about it in terms of in terms of space and place, I think it's it's it really revolves around three things, which are sort of overlapping in some way. So I think the first the first thing to uh, think of it is these spaces which are in some way, and I call it off the geographic grid. So they're overlooked or they're insignificant they may be a bit um unloved or mundane or boring these these spaces that sort of hide in plain sight and one of the uh, i think one of the the influences or i mean looking and sort of developing an interest in these spaces was a book by a couple of poets paul farley and, and michael simmons roberts who wrote this book called edgelands about 10 years ago and they wrote these beautiful poetic little uh Chapters around things like sewage plants and business parks and power stations and cooling towers. You know, all those things that maybe on a train journey when we're leaving a city and as it heads out into the countryside, we look out of the window and we see all these these kind of edgelands, these wastelands. And they gave them a sense of real, they sort of re enchanted them, they made them sort of interesting, they made them um, intriguing and uh, i think there are so that's one type of liminal space so if we if we think about maybe the buildings where we work it could be everything from the staircases to the corridors to the kitchen areas Those kind of things which never feature on a tour of the building you know you don't say right i'm going to go and show you this wonderful corridor <laughs> yeah. they're just there really. um and then, when you think outside you know sort of in the world generally, it could be everything from service stations or bus stops, which I've written about them bizarrely, roads, motorways, so those kind of those those sort of overlooked disregarded spaces, I think another sort of lens on it is to think of them as as spaces as transitions, so we talked about beaches you know the way that they are constantly changing um. You know, you did that great interview with, with Cindy Vasco uh, about ruins, and um, I think maybe one of the things that we're fascinated with in ruins is the way that they are, again, constantly constantly changing as the environment affects them, so they deteriorate, they decay. If you go back to, if you visit a ruined building, go back a year later, it's unlikely to be in the same state, as the same state, it, it's constantly changing in transition. Hmm. I think also it's, you know, some liminal spaces you could say are spaces which are in some way in, in transit. So I, I've written about uh, sort of railway carriages as as liminal spaces or spaces which attract those in transit. So uh, railway stations or airports. And then finally, it's the, it's the spaces of the margins and, and borders. So those edgelands, those spaces that are where you sort of renegotiate the borders between the rural and the urban but also things like um, receptions in my work i spend a lot of time sitting in receptions of various organizations and it is a kind of a, a liminal a liminal zone it's that that kind of borderland between the outside the street and the the inner sanctum of the of the organization and uh, there's also i'll bring in another phrase here another way to think about it there's a guy called andrew Oldenburg. he wrote a book called third spaces and he said these are the spaces which are neither sort of work nor uh, home so he talked about things like pubs and cafes and uh, coffee houses and i think it's those spaces spaces where you get a mix of different of different people with different experiences different different perspectives so he he talks about the old coffee houses of 18th century london where which were the origins for the stock exchange and uh, lloyds insurance and these were basically spaces where you would get a mix of people from merchants to to bankers to um, ship owners to captains etc and it was that mix of different people that sort of sparked those conversations that, that led to, to new ideas and to new ways of doing things. So it's a variety of things, overlapping things, so sort of spaces off the geographic grid, sort of spaces of transition and and spaces of the margin. And they cover, you know, a whole range of, of, different, of different things. But also I think it's it's often subjective as well. So what may strike me as a liminal space may not strike you as a liminal space um you know our feelings about spaces you know as you know sort of spaces are tied up with our experiences our, our our memories so going back to our the conversation about the beach if you're a tourist visiting a beach your experience of that beach is probably different from somebody who earns a living from it you know like uh, like like a fisherman, or you know, somebody who is is let's say a a, a, a lifeguard or running a lifeboat, their their experience of that space is, is going to be different. So I, I suspect what is what is liminal for me may not be the mm. same for you, and and vice versa. Does that answer your question in a very roundabout
0: way? Yes, it does. It does because I was I was kind of thinking myself. I was like, well, how. You know it is quite personal I suppose what a liminal space is because I know mm. you've written about obviously abandoned buildings ghost signs and then like you've done receptions and airports and they're quite contrasting really but I suppose then they all come yeah. back to they all share that same point in a in a different way mm. I mean for me of your posts the one that's that I kind of wouldn't have thought as liminal spaces like I say is, is the beach and also a reception because like, I kind of thought well these seem quite <laughs> busy and um you know they're they're constantly functioning but to be honest they kind of are aren't they I mean they're a transition point you don't really stay in one for, for very long until you maybe go on it yeah. office or you you go out so that that was interesting to me and I think really a, a lot of spaces could be liminal but like based on how you perceive it i mean probably one of the only places that aren't are, are your house ha- is your house yeah. really.
1: <laughs> you see i would i would say because um so the research that i'm so outside of my, my my sort of day job i'm i'm, I'm doing some uh, some doctoral research and it's it's about stories and, and where in organisations stories stories get told um and let me pick up the reception first of all so a few of the people that i've been of interviewing have identified receptions as the, the, the place where stories get told because often it's a space where let's say you've been in a in a formal meeting on the way out you stop and before you say goodbye, you might have a bit of a, a chat. And that's where you sort of may be talking about. So what are you going to be doing at the uh, the weekend or what did you do over the, the Easter weekend? And those kind of like little mini stories and, and narratives um, emerge. It's like the formal business has been done and then the informal conversation can, can take place and um i was i was also i was interviewing someone and they said and i had a, it was actually a couple of people who said when they when they go down to reception to meet someone they talked about assuming a mask so there they are they're kind of um uh, sort of in their in their office or whatever they go down to reception and then they feel that they have to put this this kind of professional professional mask on so there was that sense of sort of change or transition but um and if you talked about home and i, I think I had a couple of people have talked about, uh, and there's been uh, sort of, People writing about um, home offices and working from home and how that can be a liminal experience because it is, in a way, it is betwixt and between. So it is both your home and also uh, a place of work as well, which for some can be unsettling. It can be slightly disorientating. And, you know, the experience that we're, we're all going through at the moment. It, it intrigued me that there were a number of people sort of writing fairly early on about the difficulties that people were having, sort of combining their, their home and as a, a workspace. And, and One of the things that was being discussed was how do you actually separate the two? So at the end of the day, how do you switch off? Because there could be that temptation just to continue working. And some of the advice was around having that, that ritual to bring the day to a symbolic end. So you know, if we're working in the office or you know, we could uh, leave the building, get on a train, get in a car, drive off, that's almost a symbolic ending to the day. But how do you do that in the home and people talking about making sure, you know, you sort of like close the door on the space that you've been been working or put that laptop away in a drawer. So I think even the home can, for some, in certain circumstances, also become a a liminal space.
0: I mean, that's definitely happening now. You're right. That's something people are struggling with because it's, there isn't that point where you sort of, like you say, you go home, you drive home, you get the bus or whatever, you're just in your house. And funnily enough, I was uh, speaking to my mum because she's working from home. And do you know what she does every morning? She goes for, well, she can only do it once a day now, obviously, because of the lockdown. But before that, she was going for a walk in the morning and then yeah. a walk after to pretend like she was leaving work yeah. <laughs> just to make it feel like you know just get out of the house and also just feel like she's finished work or she's starting work or
1: I think that's great and it just shows how how we need these little sort of rituals and rites and how our our days are, are marked by them and how they give us a sense of kind of orientation and and security um so uh, yeah I think that's I think I think that's a I think that's a great example
0: yeah it's also just getting used to this people are just because people I think people thought oh I'd love to work from home it'd be amazing and now they're all like get me back to the office <laughs> like I can't like I don't like it Um, I suppose you have a picture in your head of like oh it'd be so relaxing and blah blah but it's it's nice to have that separation I think just to come home to your home and relax and like you say you've got to have those little rituals maybe even just getting dressed in I mean working in your pajamas maybe people do that but I think for some that would make you feel more like right the day's going to be productive I'm dressed now smartly and <laughs> you know
1: yeah it's it's those kind of like li- li- little markers and, and it goes back to the liminal in, the liminal as a space of uh, sort of ambiguity and paradoxes that the the feelings that people have may, may be quite mixed on the on the one hand it's uh, as you say, you know, oh, this, this working moment's is quite good. I've got, I've, I've got some, some time back. I'm I'm not commuting, etc. But also that that sense of uh, of displacement and, and slight unease that you don't know where those where those boundaries are between between work and non work, and to say all those little markers that you previously had had gone. So you, yeah. um, people have written about you know what we are collectively going through at the moment is 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 a, is a liminal is a liminal experience.
0: Yeah, no, massively. How are you actually finding that working from home? Because you have an, in, like from that other podcast you're on, you have an insane commute to work. <laughs> you're, you're crazy. Yeah. You go from Norfolk to London. Know.
1: <laughs> yeah so um yeah so I'm I'm kind of born and bred in 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 Norfolk but I've I've always worked in in London so uh yeah it is a it's a two and a half hour commute each way which um some will now be shaking their heads sadly and saying that is as you say is absolutely uh insane um I I I've, 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 I've done a um and that's why I write about trains so much, Adish, I spent so yeah. much of my life on one. Um, but uh, I've, I've slept more than I've ever slept before, I think. Um, and, yeah. uh, you know, I've, I've actually yeah f- for me it, ha- it has gained some 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 time back so um it, you know i've started uh not whether i should admit to this but uh started uh relearning the double bass i've had an old double bass lying around for years and thought well this is the opportunity to actually start playing it in a in a in a, in a more take a more serious approach to it which has been which has been good yeah, um yeah. the garden has never had so much tension before in its life um you know so there are you know, as I said before, a very fortunate um, situation being being out in the in, in the in the country. So um, that does make life a that does make a, a life a lot easier. But but yeah, it's going to be interesting how I will adjust to the commute when I go back to it. Yeah,
0: because that must for you especially, like because it's such a long commute. That must be incredibly noticeable. To think, wow, like I well, I don't know what time you get up for work. You must have to get up really early um, to get for like. Two plus hour commute. So.
1: I, I do normally during the week get up at four thirty. So um,
0: oh my god, wow!
1: Part of me was thinking, god, if I got up at four thirty now, how much could I get done? But um, I, I kind of lapse and shamefully getting up at something like six thirty, which is disgraceful, isn't Absolutely
0: it? Absolutely um, terrible.
1: <laughs> half the morning gone. Half the yeah. morning
0: gone. <laughs> do you know what? That's something interesting over uh, over here in Australia. I've noticed though is. Um, they do like super long commutes as well and that's just really normal to them like um Sam before he, he came overseas he, he was doing like an well not as long as yours you you've got the record but he was doing like an hour and a half commute to work and I've I'm maybe I'm just lazy but always with a with jobs I'm kind of like I want to be able to get there on foot or get the bus or something like I like I like to have a nice easy commute and I have to say every job I've had so far I've actually been able to walk so I've been very very lucky like, <laughs> I don't know how much longer that run will last yeah I remember
1: um a work colleague who was there uh, from Australia saying how when he was growing up, you know, if you, if you, it, you'd, people would think nothing of driving like 100, 150 miles to go to the pub. Um, and
0: Exactly, yeah. And I'm thinking it's crazy. that is
1: insane. But but for him, it's like, well, it's just normal, you know. Um.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, it's so weird. But um, talking of these bizarre spaces and, and kind of fitting with these times. Something I actually did want to ask you about was where would somewhere like a doctor's surgery or a hospital fit into the idea of a non-place? Because obviously non-place is the kind of spaces of communication, circulation, consumption, airports, shopping centers, that kind of thing. And what would a doctor's surgery or a hospital be? Would that count as a non-place or...?
1: I, I think so. I think there's, there's various ways that you could think about it. So the non-places, uh, so this uh, French writer Marc Auger, sort of wrote about non-places. And yes, it was, it was around airports and motorways and um, uh, shopping centers. And one of the things he said like about an airport is the way that your sort of identity gets sort of stripped away <clears throat> so that you as an individual, you become reduced basically to a boarding pass. Um, yeah. that, that is you, that is your identity. And I guess it's not dissimilar to being in a, let's say, in, in a hospital where you become reduced to a condition. You know, you are in mm-hmm. there because you know, you've broken your leg, um, or um, yeah, you have some other condition. That also, and also, you become reduced to your case notes as well. Those notes are on the end of the bed, which, which in a way, become you. So I think as a, there's definitely you could make a case. You could make a case that the hospital is is some form of non-place it's also liminal in the sense that you know it is a it is a you are removed from everyday life you go into this other space then hopefully you, you emerge at the end of it but you would have been through a change process while you while you've been there you will have recovered you know fingers crossed from the con- condition that you had when you went in mm. there's also in the academics there's there's been a number of articles written about um when they talked about liminal space and and hospitals talked about the role of corridors for the uh, for the medical staff that often it's in the corridors that the the conversations will take will take place so and it's a, a place where they will be de- discussing the the various the various patients the various interventions that they've made they'll be coming up with ideas for uh for different approaches etc so the, the way that these corridors become very fertile spaces of collaboration and and knowledge exchange, and of course, a corridor is in a sense, it is a liminal space. It's one of those spaces that we just kind of overlook and, uh, and don't consider, but but actually they have a really valuable role in the functioning of the hospital. And I think a waiting room as well, if we talk about a doctor's waiting room, mm-hmm. um and how many doctors, I was thinking about this, how many doctors' waiting rooms do we remember? Do, 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 do they sort of, do we remember every detail? We sort of go in and there might be a magazine there. I guess less so now we'll just look at our phones. But at one time you'd go in, there'd be a selection of rather out-of-date magazines there. You'd pick a magazine up. <clears throat> there might be some posters, yeah. Poster, yeah. <laughs> and then quickly put it down when you realise it's six years out of date. You'd then look at the posters on the wall and they would be warning about some kind of, disease or condition or something um and there'll be get
0: a- your flu jab
1: get, get your flu jab there'll be some rather kind of tired looking uh, plants there in the corner and rather uncomfortable seats but it's a, again it's not a space that you that you think with some kind of fondness or great memory that was a lovely waiting room that I sat in there they're just kind of spaces that we sort of yeah. we don't really see in a sense we just and also we're just passing through there is a there is that that they, they are places of transit that we just wait there for a bit we come in from the outside world we sit there for a little while and then we go to somewhere else we go in and see the doctor and then we and then we leave so they're a bit like a reception in that way aren't they there's a, that kind that That's kind of true, waiting, yeah. that waiting space that there's a sort of a little interregnum as we sit there before we before we see the doctor. But they're definitely, I would say, mundane. Um yeah, we there rarely um have been tours of of waiting rooms, um, notable waiting rooms the country uh <laughs> there's spaces where we want to spend as little if you think about it there are spaces where we want to spend as little time as possible in we don't go there for that oh great i'm going to be sitting here for the next 45 minutes i'm really going to enjoy this experience yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah i only want to be here in two seconds before i see the doctor and then i want to be out so um, so, so yes i i think there is a way that you can you can see those spaces as 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 liminal and also as as non-places as well.
0: Do you know what's kind of interesting because I know you've said in terms of airports you quite like them and see them as a place you can sort of get on and work and relax and and it's funny because that's a, a place of transition like a doctor's surgery but yet a doctor's surgery nobody ever thinks oh yeah I'm so happy to be here I can relax I can check my emails you just like get me out of here kind of thing and I guess something to do with it is that end point because I suppose at an airport you've got a nice thing to well potentially a nice thing to look forward to you're going on holiday or you're going home and uh doctor surgery nobody ever looks at that with fondness like oh i can like i say i'll check my emails i'll catch up on work while i'm waiting you're more annoyed you're like for god's sake come on like i've been waiting for an hour here
1: that would be quite something wouldn't it if you approached it like a like a shoreditch cafe that you sort of went into the waiting room got your laptop out um have you got a wi-fi code and just sort of settled down to work for (laughs) three hours um (laughs) so i mean I, i must admit this um, it's not a hospital, but but thinking about in a, in a sense another kind of um, I guess non space. Uh, uh, when I've taken my car in for a, for a service, and uh, you know, it, quite often people will say, "Well, look, it's going to do two or three hours. Do you want to sort of have a courtesy car and, and drive off?" And I say, "No, I'll stay here. Actually, yeah, you know, I've got free tea and coffee. You've got a Wi-Fi. I'll just get the laptop out. Quite happy to sit here and work." Um, <laughs> yeah, and it's, uh, and it's a bit like that airport thing where and i think it yeah, you know, it depends on the circumstances whether you, know, you press for time or not press for time but i always find there's that moment of going through once you've kind of cleared security so you've gone through all those kind of all the all the checks and you're then through and if you've got an hour or an hour and a half because i am one of those people who do tend to like to get to an airport maybe a bit earlier than i than i need to um I I find it quite if I can find a, a quiet quiet space quite relaxing quite quite comforting. You can you, you sort of look at the people around you, and I don't know whether you whether you do this. I mean, issues just people watching in in places like um stations or airport and you you start constructing narratives about the people around you so you'll see like, maybe an interesting couple or family group and you're thinking well i wonder where they're from where they're going and your your mind starts creating these stories or narratives about the the people that the, the people that you meet uh so i i i do find them quite in some ways quite soothing places quite creative places uh depending depending on the mood
0: what do you think about coach stations (laughs) or have you not spent enough time in them um it's
1: a it's a a long time um since since coach stations but there is yeah there's that similar sort of feel to them and again i think you get it's like all those spaces of of transition where you're surrounded by people that are that are coming or going it's just being intrigued by by those around you and why they're there and where they're going and what's the story for them for them being there yeah I can't I can't resist temptation to to create these narratives
0: yeah I was gonna say I always, I feel like coach stations have a completely different vibe to an airport though there's yeah
1: they're not quite as, there's sometimes a glamour to airports which you rarely exactly. get exactly they're at.
0: like slick kind of and, and coach stations are a bit rough around the edges.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think also with airports there's there's always the possibility because even if you're doing let's say a, a short flight you're going across to Paris or whatever you see the board and you see all those places on the board. So it could be Sydney, it could be Hong Kong, you know, whatever. Um, and, and there's a bit of you that thinks I could actually go there. I could actually go there. Um, it's on the board. It is a space. It is a place in a coach station. It's 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 rarely going to be as exciting or as exotic. I imagine. Um, yeah. I, I think standing at Norwich coach station and seeing a, seeing a, a bus to Kings Lynn isn't quite the same, <laughs> isn't quite the same feeling. I
0: I think I have a soft spot for for coach stations though actually I quite like them because I I quite I don't mind going on a coach ride because you know if you've got some music Mm. to listen to or a podcast or something get yourself a get yourself some snacks from the shop and you don't and also I think you don't have to do the whole security thing I mean that's one part of airports I hate doing I hate having to do the security part I know what you mean once you're through but sometimes like especially in peak holiday season you know you've got babies crying and everyone's stressed around you and I just feel like coach stations are more chilled out I guess because you're just getting on a coach (laughs) that's all really and
1: and there is something about being quiet uh, if you're on a coach and 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 same with the train and in some ways you know part of me misses that that sort of train journey is that you almost create that little secluded nest around you Mm. where you can read say you can you can listen to music you can can lose yourself in a podcast um you can you can do all these things it's kind of your time it's um and you know you're unlikely to be disturbed so it it is you can just kind of focus on, on what you want to on what you want to do it is like you've made a little nest around you so uh which is which which is quite cozy and i always i don't know about you whether you prefer do you prefer sort of journeys during the day where you can see out or at night where you've got the you know you've got the darkness and maybe the lights appearing and you're not quite sure where you are uh, uh, for, for me they've, they've both got their 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 attractions
0: no i agree i think i i quite like in terms of a train ride i quite enjoy them at night i mean it depends because i mean it depends what kind of train you're going on if you're going on a sort of long journey one and there's not many people on it it's quite nice But if you're going on one you know you're coming back from london and it's got everybody like with their mcdonald's and they've been boozing and everything (laughs) it's a different experience um and i think obviously if you were traveling in the morning as well that can be i quite like that sometimes um you know with the sun coming in or Actually, they've all got valid. They're all valid. They're all quite nice. Nice times to travel, other than obviously peak peak hour. <laughs> then you're going to be sardines. You won't even get a look out the window.
1: Well, it was one um, one of the. Um, the posts I did about railway carriages, and I stumbled across these articles written about um, the railways in Victorian times. And the, the the railway carriages were considered to be quite racy places because, you know, it's one of the few places where you got people of different uh, different classes and different genders uh, mixing. Um, they were also well known to be haunted by sort of confidence tricksters um, and card sharps and various others. And there were lots of warnings to. Um, Especially to women who were sort of travelling unchaperoned uh, on the on the trains of the dangers that that awaited them, so they they, they were seen as as quite edgy places, uh, and there were there were lots of kind of warnings. There were musical songs about about railway carriages. Which is quite not quite the same same today. Um, there was a there was a certain uh, sort of mystique and atmosphere mm. to the to the humble railway
0: carriage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't really. I wouldn't say you get that now unless, like I say, you're going, you're travelling late, Friday, Saturday night, or something on a train. <laughs> <laughs> you you don't really not see that. <laughs> I do quite enjoy. Um, if it was quite a quiet train station, if you're there late at night and it's kind of just you and no one around, I, I quite like that. And you know, it's quite atmospheric in a way. I think just the night coming over and you just to think of all the hustle and bustle that's gone by in the day, and now it's just you there, like sitting there waiting for a train or something. Yeah,
1: there's that sort of sort of moment of sort of solitude, that sort of moment of uh, sort of pause between. Between different times, as you as you say, and it, it's that kind of that interest of seeing something almost out of place, out of time. So we assume when we go to a railway station, or kind of saying, it's going to be busy, it's going to be heaving with people. So when it's the opposite, it is quite, you know, it is it, in a sense, it's quite sort of unsettling, a little bit um kind of eerie. The fact that there, you know, a place that was so populated is is now. Um, it, it is now almost empty, so I, I think there is there is that to it as well. It's the the attraction of the eerie or the attraction of the weird.
0: Definitely. Have you seen any of the images of London or Sydney or any of these cities on lockdown? That's a, a really really strange thing yeah. to see.
1: There, there was some. I think it was in the garden yesterday about um, underground stations. So a series of um, uh, photos about under, uh, the, the the underground, which of course you know we usually experience as, as something which is absolutely heaving,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and so I always – and uh, I yeah always. Uh, and that's another one as well. If you're if you're de- if you're in the tube station, uh, sort of late at night, and there, there's no one around, and you're going round those those sort of like tunnels and walkways and stairs, you know that can be uh, that can be quite an uncanny place. Mainly because I think imagination is is sort of working, and it, because it features in so many sort of films and TV programs of somebody going through a deserted tube station and being trailed or followed, that our imagination starts to starts to kick in. Yeah,
0: absolutely. I also feel like sometimes if you go through a deserted uh, underground station, it almost—I I know like the decor is exactly the same, and a lot of them are very old school they haven't changed much but it makes me sometimes feel like god i feel like i've stepped back in time because there's just no one there mm. and then you see all this old signage and because there's no one there in their modern clothes on their phones and just you could you could just picture or pretend you're in a different time kind of
1: yeah and i think that's attraction because you can you can do sort of tours of uh, some of the uh, abandoned uh sort of tube stations and the attraction is there is that you will see you know you, you see some of the old signs and some of the some of the old posters but i think generally when we and one of the things that uh, has, has been sort of growing on me is you know our fascination with places of uh, abandonment or, or places of of ruin and it's the, the the way that we need to create a, a narrative or a story. So I talked about it in the sense of you, know, you see people at a train station or a coach station, and you you kind of try to weave these narratives around why they're there. But I think part of the you know the fascination for things which are ruined or abandoned or, or derelict is the need for us to create some kind of story. So if we see an abandoned factory, we think, well. Why is it abandoned? What what happened? What was the reason? Or, you know, If we're exploring these buildings and we see, let's say, an old an old desk with some tools or implements, we think, "Well, whose desk was that? You know, who made those marks in the in the desk? Who wrote the graffiti on the wall?" And is that that need we have to create some form of of explanation?
0: Yeah.
1: There's a lovely phrase. There's a a writer, Mark Mark Fisher, who who wrote about the weird and the eerie. He said the eerie is the absence of presence, Um, and it's there's an absence of explanation or reason and I, I sort of took it i was strange thing to write about but i was you know, doing several walks around around the village and you find you find just see this, these cans and rubbish that have been discarded on the verges, and you know often you we know, just an eye you know it's just litter waste etc. But what struck me because it was just about the time that all the hedges were coming alive and the verges were growing is the way that these like discarded cans and bottles were being sort of engulfed in the in the vegetation that was growing. So I just started taking weirdly uh, photographs of them and um part of the thing that occurred to me again was the the stories so on one path which is Quite a distance from any road, I would find an old Budweiser bottle that had just been thrown away in the hedge, and I'm thinking, I wonder who threw that there. Well, why? You know, what were? Why were they out having a drink in the middle of the the countryside? Did they just happen to have a bottle of Budweiser on there? Had they gone there deliberately to drink a bottle of Budweiser? What's the What's the story? What's the explanation? You find yourself becoming a a bit of a detective, trying to create the backstory for for why it's there. and so again it was looking at this this discarded rubbish in a in a in a slightly slightly different way yeah. but it did strike me it is that the the attraction of the story there and the need for us to make stories to explain what's going on around us
0: i know i, I find that really interesting and i really enjoyed that aspect of some of the things you wrote the post about ghost signs and it you know we just conjure up images <laughs> of these past businesses in our mind and you know we probably think oh they were thriving and doing amazing yeah. and the truth is we don't know we don't know what happened to them were they successful yeah. did they go under and another one I thought as well when you wrote about graveyards and you know you see mm. maybe uh, an image of somebody on the grave or a teddy bear or flowers or you, you just make this stuff up you don't know the people like and if you see a grave that's sort of got yeah. overgrown you think oh that poor person no one cares yeah. about them and or, or you you just think no one ever cared about them which probably mm. might not be true it might just be their fat the, the sort of family line as, as as ended and you just sort of come up with all these plot lines <laughs> kind of of their life
1: I think that's a lovely way of putting it. Is is those those plot lines because we've got some of the details there. Because when you if you think about a graveyard, a graveyard, you look at the stones, and I think it's you know it's I think there's very few people who kind of walk, walking through a graveyard or a cemetery can can resist the temptations to start reading some of the gravestones. And you so you have some of the plot there. So you might have, you know, the date that they died, you know, how old they were when they died, uh, some names of families. So you can see are they part of a big family or and some of the great if there's gravestones from other family members around. Uh but I always think the ones are the most poignant where you, you see um that someone has died young or it's uh, it's uh, mm. um the grave of a child. And then because that is out of the ordinary, you know, it is unexpected that someone would die at that age. I guess less so. In the in the past but you again it, that, that really triggers that so i wonder what is the story here what what happened was it an accident was it a childhood illness and and sometimes we get the epitaphs which give a or you get clues um thinking of some of the gravestones around here some of the the um the symbols or the icons will will indicate what they did um when alive so it could be a picture of a tractor which you know, it's a sign that they were a, a, a farmer, or it could be a, you know, I don't know, a fire engine or a train or whatever, something which gives that that clue about the the, the plot of their life. Yeah, um, yeah, So I think yeah, I think churchyards are very storied places.
0: Mm. Um, I think they're quite interesting places because I think you know when you're reading the graves, they could. Because obviously you make up this little scenario, they could seem quite tragic and sad places. But then I think sometimes when you go to a graveyard, I think they can be quite peaceful places, quite re- relaxing. And because they've always got a lot of the time, you know, benches and trees and somewhere nice to sit and relax. And when I I, I used to live in Winchester when I was at uni, and they, the graveyard there is is lovely. I used to like going sitting in there because it's you've got a whole view of the rolling hills and it's just very peaceful. It depends, a bit like the beach again, I guess, because also if you go to a graveyard at night, like we actually went, we actually got locked in that graveyard at night once and then we were freaking out. We were getting really scared. (laughs) Like, oh my God, you just suddenly, it doesn't seem all peaceful and lovely. It seems like, oh, someone's going to, ghost is going to appear or, and there was this very creepy statue of an angel in this graveyard. And you know, the old Doctor Who um, episode with those angels
1: yes um, so we
0: were just you know your ma- imagination goes wild and you just think all these awful things
1: so. and, and i think that that's another thing isn't it it's the way that um stories are told it's not just the stories of the people um who may be buried there it's that there, there was a there is a, a history of stories associated with those places so you you talk about the uh the doctor who Story. is it the weeping angels is that the have I that's got that it, right yeah, yeah, that's yeah. It. yeah um so we're thinking of stories that have been told about these places and you know one, one of the threads that i guess goes through my from my post is the the influence of uh, of folklore mm. uh, the the link between folklore and place and i'm going to get the date wrong but i think it's there's this there's this um folklore about st mark's eve um uh, and I, Trying, desperate trying to remember what time of the year St Mark's Eve is, I think it could be April May, something like that. But anyway there is a tradition that if you go to a churchyard on St Mark's Eve and you stand in the the church porch at midnight, you will see a procession through the graveyard of all those who will die over the coming year. Oh that's awful! Isn't it awful? It's kind of really, it's like this solemn procession of those that die I mean, if you go to the churchyard at midnight and uh, i think it's all those all those 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 stories associated with places so i think on the um uh, the crossroads one a uh, sort of a local east anglian cure folk cure for the ague which was a type of malaria fever is you go to the crossroads at midnight and then i think you turn around three times and then you hammer a, a nail into the uh, into the ground um, and it's always at midnight isn't it and i guess that's, yeah. the, it's never at you know go there at 2:30 in the afternoon um, it's yeah. always at midnight and i guess it's because you know it's the it's that liminal phase where you move from one day to a to to another but yeah all these all these stories that get associated with place and how these spaces attract attract stories mm. I think also in the, uh, the Crossroads one, the other one that, because um, I was researching Crossroads and there were just so many stories that we associate with, uh, with, with Crossroads. And there was this tradition of when the, well, I call on a funeral procession, especially in sort of rural areas where you might have to travel a long way from an outlying farm or hamlet to the church, that every time you reached a crossroads, the funeral procession would stop and a prayer would be said and one of the explanations is that you know crossroads is the shape of a cross so it's a holy place but the other explanation which which, um appeals to me more is the fact that they you stop there so that you confuse the uh the spirit of the dead person so that they can't return to their um can't return to their home um because they don't know where to go (laughs) Uh, and i I rather (laughs) you just you're just doing confuse the ghost uh Yeah. Stop at the crossroads, prayer, prayer, have a drink, and then move on. Um.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that is that is a nice little little uh, story there. I was just thinking then, as oh, sorry, I'm just like throwing all these these no, uh, places at you that I'm oh, thinking of coming up in my head. But I was going to say, what what do you think about like a um, petrol station? Because at night they can be quite you know dodgy places. Because you know they end up having you can't go in and you've got to put the money under the little. Yeah slot and everything and you know because they're kind of a place that you only get you literally go through to get petrol and that's about all yeah
1: and and it's another of those mundane spaces Mm. isn't it that we don't really take in um we just kind of see them we don't really recognize them yeah, sometimes I've you forget no. which, which you know is it a Shell station, is it a BP station, or whatever because they've got that similar format, haven't they? It's a it's a, it's a kind of a familiar familiar layout.
0: Yeah, it, it's funny as well because they really stand out on the landscape because of the big bright lights yeah. and like, like you say, you just whatever you don't remember them really very <laughs> very well. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and the um, there's a whole series of photographs, sort of old petrol stations in in America. So you know, you get these kind of like three house towns with a petrol station on Route sixty six or whatever in the middle of the in the middle of the uh, of the kind of the plains or or the desert. Um, often with those kind of right, really lovely kind of nineteen fifties iconography and sort of. Uh, fonts and signs and all the rest so you, there's loads of photographs um a uh, series of photographs mm. on those and sometimes mm. even around here you'll you'll go past uh what looks like a a house and it'll have uh, two or three petrol pumps outside uh because back in the day that's where you'd go to get your petrol and it wouldn't be a dedicated petrol station but just a house or a village shop with a couple of old pumps outside so there's uh the they're, they're almost these kind of like abandoned abandoned petrol stations but yeah they're a bit like the uh, the airport or the shopping center i'm sure i don't know whether oj wrote about petrol stations but i can yes yeah, certainly and also they're places of transit aren't they you, you, you don't get there and time for the day you, you, you're kind of in and out so it's constantly changing constant turnover of of, of people are, are arriving and arriving yeah. and departing um and also the way there's Run out to offer so many other things now. So they have little shops attached to them and kind of cafe areas and all the rest of them. I suppose the nearest is I wrote on um blog about roads about service stations, motorway services. That's
0: true. They kind of, to be fair, they do kind of fall yeah. into that category, don't they? Yeah. Really? Just a place to pick stuff. It is.
1: And again, with service stations, we think of them as they, it, it's it's a kind of, um yeah, they're, they're rarely a destination. Uh, we don't think, well, where should we go to say, let's go to a service station? We're going to hang out there. But, but intriguingly, in the early days of the motorways, when you know, going on a motorway was quite an event, the service stations were designed as uh, you know places that you would visit, and uh, you still see these remnants of beautiful kind of like nineteen sixties modernistic designs uh, with with fine dining restaurants attached to them. And uh, there's a series of postcards.
0: I, I saw that on your post. It was it's called like boring postcards. Yeah, <laughs> boring just...
1: postcards. Are these service stations with, with kind of like um, waiters in fine livery and uh, and, and china and uh, 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 um, and kind of full cutlery and all the rest? It's so
0: bizarre to think that now that that was a thing. I, I mean, I guess back then maybe because road travel would have been more popular. I guess people, maybe people wouldn't yeah. have flown as much. It was a big deal; like it was part of the part it, of the trip.
1: They were almost almost glamorous. Uh, so. Yeah, <laughs> how times have changed, but.
0: I know, like, now it's the old Little Chef. I don't even know if Little Chef's are around. I never see them much well, anymore.
1: Yeah, they um, – uh, I, I think they have disappeared. Well, yeah. But, but again, you know, as, as a kid, a Little Chef used to be a – wow, a trip to a Little Chef, that's, that's a bit different. A place by the road where you can eat. Um, yeah, old yeah. generation loving yes. the uh, pancakes with uh, vanilla ice cream and maple syrup, uh, so –
0: when when I was younger as well, I always used to kind of think, "How do these people get to work?" That was sort of a bizarre thought for me, which is stupid. But I just used to think they work here, like in the middle of the motorway. <laughs> like, where do they live? And you know, obviously they just drove in their car. But it just they just seemed like places in the middle of nowhere yeah, and- a,
1: by the you know, by, by by the side of the road. You, yeah usually sort of. By necessity, from for any town, because that's why you'd go there. Because it, you know, there, there was nowhere near where you could go to. You could go to eat. So yeah, these little outposts, sort of in the in the countryside. I mean, did you? You didn't think that they actually lived there full time? That they they never left the little share. Can you imagine? Yeah, that? I
0: know, and Matt. What? How awful is that? Like that date? A, just... a little
1: dormitory at the back. Yeah. <laughs> Having left here in thirty-five years.
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. Would you say like you have a favorite liminal space you've written about, or have you got you know one in mind you might like to write about or
1: well there's there's one that I find myself photocopy uh, sort of um taking photos of more and more, and it is of of pylons um a strange thing to take photographs of, but um
0: a lot of people are into them though they, <laughs> they love absolutely them. love them. Yeah. And
1: I, I, and I sort of try to think why that is, because say, we live in quite a, a very rural part of Norfolk. It's a, it's a very attractive place. But there is a line of pylons. In fact, I can see them from the room I'm in at the moment going across the countryside. And I think for some you know, people would say, well, you know, what made them think about putting a line of, of pylons in there? You know, it's sort of desecrating the landscape. But I do find something beautiful about pylons, the, the sort of the symmetry and the shape. Mm. And the way that they, you know, especially at different times of the year, they, they sort of catch the light. And you, you look at them in a particular way and you see the lines going across the, going across the countryside. And also the strange sound they make as well. So uh, especially in winter, a humming noise or the crackle when it's, when it's frost. And I remember you know, going back to stories again where I grew up. I grew up on a farm. And uh, there was a line of pylons nearby. And I remember as a child, my dad telling me that they were uh, they were iron soldiers uh, walking across the countryside. And even now, I can't look at a line of pylons without thinking of them as a line of people um, <laughs> yeah. walking. They're walking across the land so there is this this fascination with them and i was very pleased i did find there was a pile on appreciation society and i that made me so happy yeah. um so I, I find myself taking photos of them and i've got to explore what is it that sort of draws me to them and in what way could we think of them as as as, as liminal but again i think partly it's that you know they're overlooked, so quite often we just don't we just don't see them. A bit like telegraph um, telegraph poles and telegraph wires, but they can be incredibly photogenic. And there is a strange yes, in some ways they are out of place. They look, you know, I see why some would think that they are a blot on the landscape. But also there is something that is attractive about them. They have a, a mystique and a, a beauty of their own. Uh, and sometimes we just have to look a little bit carefully to to recognize that beauty so that's that's definitely one which I haven't written about yet although I
0: have that'll be is that gonna my, be a future post yeah
1: that'll that'll be a future post although my my, my Twitter feed seems more and more kind of uh, sort of pile on obsessed but um yeah that that will be a future that will be a future post you can hold me to that alish this year
0: I, I think I think that one's gonna be a hit because <laughs> there is like you say there's just a real fascination with pylons yeah. and what about what about the wind the wind turbines do you like those or
1: well i, I do actually and I know it, they they can be very um controversial and especially where they're 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 on land uh, and I think it probably depends how how close you are to them but I, I i do find them there's something quite um majestic about them as well and they they have that same the shape of them again—it's something about the the shape and the size which kind of draws draws me draws me to them. Um, and there was a quote: my um, my mum has, uh, has has very bad dementia, and um, but when I take her out for a drive close to where we drive there are these uh th- these wind turbines and there was one day where the sun was catching on the uh on the blades and she couldn't work out what they were she just said what are those golden swords in the sky and i thought what a wonderful poetic way to describe is, yeah. this, this <laughs> these wind turbines because she couldn't she didn't know what they were it was just but just to her they were like golden swords in the sky and um but yeah so that's a. Uh, you know, it's another way of another way of looking at them.
0: Yeah. Do you think it's something as well to do with maybe like a human print on the natural landscape that we've just built something so spectacular onto this otherwise empty area?
1: Yes, and I think I can quite see why some would would say that you know that that's not right that we are kind of imposing ourselves on the landscape, we are despoiling the landscape. But I guess the, you know, the the whole of landscape is you know, is is affected by us. So when I kind of walk out here, when I see the fields and the hedges, that's not kind of natural that's been shaped by by generations of of kind of farmers and cultivation uh, over the over the centuries you know at one time it would have been completely wide open and then with the enclosure the hedges came in so there's the marks of of kind of humans uh, on the landscape continually the roads and the lanes you know, they were formed by by people creating their, their own passageways their marks on mm. so those, those kind of marks those those imprints are, are always there I guess the scale and the severity and it it's always going to be a, a subjective thing as to what you feel belongs and what and what doesn't belong yeah. but I often I often you know we think about the so certainly, where I am now, it's very much an agricultural area. In a way, it is an industrial landscape. The industry happens to be happens to be agriculture, uh, and those marks of people are everywhere. Part of me thinks that when they started putting up uh, all the churches um, with the towers and the spires, there were people there going, "Oh, absolutely That's an absolute blot on the landscape." That that tower
0: <laughs> probably was, I can't see yeah. the
1: view of the tree anymore. Um, uh, and now, of course, you know they are, you know signs of uh symbols of great sort of beauty and elegance and refinement uh so yeah, yeah. so i guess perceptions will change over the over the years as i say if you think about wind turbines they're in, in a way they are kind of windmills but a bit bigger uh, and again it, I, I like to think that when the windmill started going up people were, were gathering and going ah oh, it's ruined it's ruined my view <laughs> that that, that
0: yeah, that's something I actually find really interesting is the changing perceptions of architecture and certain buildings like industrial heritage and stuff. Mm-hmm. I think we're in that transition point now where some people are are appreciating it, but then like you say, you know, some people will think, "Oh God, this is an eyesore; oh, it's ugly." And it's just it's just a matter of time, you know, when something's old enough, I think people then start to like it. I mean, you obviously get the odd few people who quite enjoy to see like more industrial modern sites and things like that but mm. I always wonder to myself because obviously both of us are quite intrigued by dull or mundane <laughs> <spaces>. <laughs> but I feel like if you really look at them there's a lot you can get out of them compared to something that's traditionally beautiful there's a lot to see if you actually take the time to to really look at it and I guess I think sometimes part of that comes from this what we were talking about you kind of craft these stories around them because churches are lovely and you can do the same but something that's a bit rough around the edges it just lets your imagination run a bit more wild and you can it
1: does and uh I was just thinking actually that that make that would make um a wonderful epitaph wasn't it he was interested in dull and mundane places that would be a that would be a really <laughs> epitaph. Um, but you know, the the changing perceptions i think one thing that 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 strikes me is uh is brutalism and brutalist architecture and how uh kind of one time it was it was um it was criticized and vilified uh, and now it, it, it has come back into vogue and i recognize that in myself because where i work it's right next to the barbican in in, in london which is a sort of a, a brutalist uh, sort of complex and at, at one ta- stage i used to think oh this is kind of gray and dull and boring but over the years i've really grown to love it and it's one of my favorite places to to walk and again it's uh the shape and the symmetry of the architecture the the texture of the of the uh, of the concrete um the way that wild spaces are are interspersed you know you get a couple of old churches um even though it is a new building there is interweave interwoven old history roman remains etc um and, and so i've really come to to love it as a as a style and and as and a space as well mm-hmm. and so i think uh, sort of moods change over over time both the popular mood but but also the way that we may react to things and as we change and as we grow older spaces that, that struck us as unattractive unappealing suddenly develop a, a, an appeal and a, an attraction to us
0: definitely i think brutalist architecture it's a well it's a real statement piece of building really isn't it and I, and I guess people are seeing that now they're like wow this really is something and yeah i have to say that is um a, an interview i'd like to do i need to find somebody but i'd, I'd really like to do one about brutalist architecture because it's just you know it's very interesting and it's very interesting as we were just saying the changing view of it the appreciation of it now when yeah. before it was a, very much hated i mean some people still don't like it I think I'm in the middle sometimes I'm I'm like yeah I I can really see the the appeal of this building the beauty of it the interest it might depend where it is and I think again it depends on the memories you have associated with it too that kind of plays a a role
1: I was thinking about the interview that you did with um with Portals of London and I think one of my favorite story pieces that he wrote was around the Barbican and uh, this kind of portal that exists in the Barbican. And ever since I've read that, I cannot walk around the Barbican without this feeling that suddenly I'm going to disappear into a different time. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, really, it's really colored my view of that space. And I keep saying to people, you must read this, you must read this, you know.
0: <laughs> yeah, he's honestly, his blog is such a good idea, wasn't it? It's just like, bringing it is wonderful yeah i i remember <laughs> i because i said that on the interview when i first found it for me i was like what is this is this genuine or because <laughs> it is so on the cusp of being believable and
1: uh, it, it, it is and I, I think i think the first time i read it part of me was going is this is this somebody writing seriously about this and and then the kind of the penny drop but um i, I do find that these weird coincidences so last summer i was at city airport and uh i was i was just kind of flicking through my feed and i saw there'd been a new portals of london uh post and it was about silvertown which was basically the area where i was then where city airport is located and i thought wow this is a this is a coincidence i'm here yeah. maybe i have entered another another dimension i'm not really at city airport um, yeah, really but yeah i think that, i think the one about the the, the church the, again sort of working in the city and you see all these old sort of churches in the city of london the one about the church that um you go in in one location and when you come out of the church, you're in a different location, this church that just moves around. Yeah. And, again, that just kind of sparks my imagination. It's brilliant. Yeah,
0: no, it really is. I think we'll round up here, but where can people find your blog and, you know, your, your Twitter handle and all that?
1: So it's uh, it's liminalnarratives.com. Um, so feel free to to, to drop in uh, and visit all these uh, spaces that we've been discussing And uh, Twitter, it's at LiminalNerate. And uh, yeah, you'll find pictures of pylons, but not just pictures of pylons. There's other stuff on there as well.
0: (laughs) No, definitely worth checking out because I've got to say, Ian, I I really enjoy it. And I think you just really, you're very good at expressing those kind of difficult things you think in your head into words like you're just very good at that getting that across because yeah. a lot of this liminal stuff's very feeling based isn't really? it it's very yeah. in your head yeah. and you managed to get that into words so yeah it's oh, really really good. Oh, I'm glad you enjoy it. I'm glad you enjoyed it. So there we have it. I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Ian and of course as usual if you like the sound of his work do go over and check it out. For anything else Sense of Place podcast related, head over to senseofplacepod.com. Ratings and reviews always appreciated. Likewise, patrons and Kofi donations are too. Anyway, hope you have a great day, morning, evening, whatever time it is where you are. And I'll speak to you again soon.